Sit quietly after difficult news. If in financial downturns, you can remain perfectly calm. If you can see your neighbors travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy. If you can happily eat whatever is put on your plate. If you can fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill. If you can always find contentment just where you are, you are probably the family dog. (laughs) That is why we so often find ourselves with our little furry past or present as one of our muses for benefactor or good friend. Just like that. They really are muses for us to teach us and remind us of those things. And to, in a very, very ordinary, endearing way, begin to cultivate and deepen and support this tremendously valuable quality of equanimity. So what is equanimity? I have a working definition that has five parts. And often when I say this definition, I watch people scramble to get them all. So I'm going to do you the kindness of posting it outside so that you can just relax and get the parts that you get. Okay. So it's five parts. Equanimity is the balance of the non-reactive mind and heart grounded in wisdom that supports a deep caring and leads to an appropriate response. So equanimity is the balance of the non-reactive mind and heart grounded in wisdom, which supports a deep caring and leads to an appropriate response. Now, if I was going to bring in a sixth quality, it would be spaciousness. But up till now, I haven't been able to figure out how to plug in spaciousness without creating the ultimate run-on sentence. (laughs) That being said, as I was reflecting on this topic, which is so dear to my heart this afternoon, all of a sudden, inspiration arose. And so I'm going to try out six. And um, I would say you can write me notes and say whether it's the ultimate run-on sentence. Please don't. Okay? It's in the service of um, our practice, not the definition. So here's my latest try. Equanimity is the spacious balance of the non-reactive mind and heart grounded in wisdom, which supports a deep caring and leads to an appropriate response. So equanimity is spaciousness of mind and heart, evenness of mind and heart. It's the quality which supports all of the other divine abodes to mature. So I wanted to share with you yet another quote by Yanipanika Tara, who Sylvia was quoting this afternoon. And this quote from him is about equanimity. Equanimity rooted in insight is the guiding and restraining power for the other three sublime states. It points out to them the direction they have to take, and it sees to it that this direction is followed. Equanimity, which means even-mindedness, gives metta an even, unchanging firmness and loyalty. Oh, that last part, loyalty. 
That's not something I necessarily think of with equanimity. He continues, equanimity furnishes, furnishes compassion with an even unwavering courage and fearlessness, enabling it to face the awesome abyss of misery and despair which confront boundless compassion again and again, even unwavering courage and fearlessness. This is a practice of unwavering courage and fearlessness. Every moment, every day, every situation, all of our lives. He continues, to the active side of compassion, equanimity is the calm, firm hand led by wisdom, indispensable to those who want to practice the difficult art of helping others. Equanimity being a vigilant self-control for the sake of the final goal, which he's pointing to as awakening, does not allow sympathetic joy to rest content with humble results, forgetting the real aims we have to strive for. So we were opening up to the quality of mudita or sympathetic joy this afternoon. And for me, that quality just calls out for boldness. May we be bold in that practice, balanced by equanimity. So in the Mahayana Buddhist philosophy, actually equanimity is talked about and trained in first as the ground of the awakening heart. And then out of that ground, the great compassion arises. And out of that deep caring, both in the heart and in the action, there's this warmth and friendliness that begins to pervade more and more. And out of that warmth and friendliness and kindness, we can then extend it when something wonderful happens with this tremendous joy. So it's a little bit different progression than in our tradition where we start with metta and then compassion and then sympathetic joy and then equanimity. And the good news is, is that this just shows us whatever's a doorway in is the doorway in. Use your doorway. So there's an image for equanimity that I really love. And it's the image of the great-grandmother tree. She's got deep roots. She's seen many seasons. Many different bird families have set up their homes and, and then moved on, and the squirrel families, and whoever of the creatures that lives there. Season after season after season, perhaps snow on her boughs, Strong winds, gentle rains, warm sun. The leaves come and they fall. She's definitely lost a branch or two. Maybe there's a a gnarled place. Seen it all. And that's often used as a metaphor for equanimity. That grandmotherly experience a weathering life on life's terms that doesn't necessarily have something to do with our age, I have to acknowledge. It's not age-related, necessarily. And so I think about this image, and I connect it with the metaphor of weather systems in our minds. And I said to you, a couple of you today, when we were checking in, you checked in about something, and I said, oh, it sounds like a storm came through. And now it passed, and you looked at me, and you nodded, and you said, yeah, it was a real storm. And I said, yeah, I hear you. 
because sometimes it's like that. A storm comes through. How are we going to move in those winds is the quality of equanimity. Not rigid, grounded, deep roots, available to the experience as it is, caring, balanced, so we don't get knocked over. There's a wonderful story of the Buddha and his son Rahula at the time that Rahula was just coming into adulthood, so late teens. And at the time of the story, something was going on with Rahula, the Buddha's son, and the result of it was that he was experiencing something that we've all experienced many times before called comparing mind. Isn't it reassuring to you that the Buddha's son experienced this? We got a, a human mind that's not 100% free in this moment. It could arise. That's so different than me and my problem of this judgment. Different attitude of mind. And so, not to get into the whole thing of the story, but Rahula was experiencing comparing mind. And the Buddha came by and basically said, Son, you know, it's okay. Let me give you a teaching to remind you to not take it so personally. And the teaching was a formal teaching, the way that it's been passed down since the time of the Buddha and the oral tradition and then written down on palm leaves and now in texts that we can read or online. The teaching was, "Um, son, please don't take this personally. When this happens to you, say to yourself, this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. So that's formal language for, son, you're in pain. Please don't take it so personally. And so Rahula took that to heart, and he went and practiced some mindfulness of breathing, and he came back to his father, and he said, Dad, obviously some doubt had arisen in him. He said, Dad, why is mindfulness of breathing helpful? And the Buddha said, Oh, son, I'm so glad you asked. Let me me give you another metaphor, son. Maybe this will be helpful. Because we don't know exactly what the Buddha said, right? So we can improv it and and really make it real. These are conversations between parents and children. So he said, son, when you're meditating, develop meditation like the earth. For when you develop meditation like the earth, agreeable and disagreeable things that happen at your sense doors will not invade the mind and remain. And then he said, Just so, you know, things happen, beautiful things, terrible things, you know. Just as we put clean things and dirty things on the earth, and the earth is not humiliated, disgusted, and appalled by this, so too, my son, develop meditation like the earth. For when you develop meditation like the earth, these things will not, as another translation has put, will not stay in charge of the mind. We won't get all caught up in a drama and taking it personally. And then we lose our evenness of mind. Reactivity is rising. The caring gets clouded over. The wisdom, zoop, it went somewhere. And the appropriate response is less accessible. Now we really need to acknowledge that just because it's true, the metaphor that we put clean things and dirty things on the earth and the earth doesn't take it personally, it does not mean that the earth is not influenced and impacted by our attitudes of mind, and how they manifest in our actions. Which is why equanimity is such an important quality to cultivate 
so that internally we're clear and balanced and we manifest externally, clear and balanced. We take care of these earth bodies, we take care of the planet earth body. We have the wisdom available for an appropriate response. So one of the pieces of wisdom with equanimity is something that I've been saying before this retreat. It's become something that I drop in to remind myself often about the wisdom that it's not about the object. So yes, in this retreat we work with muses, but they're the muse for the metta, for the equanimity. We use phrases, but we're not here to become expert equanimity phrase-sayers or metta-sayers or anything else. What we're doing is we're uncoupling, we're ungluing the reactivity, the struggle, the obsession, the addiction to the object so that we can actually shine forth with the qualities of mind and heart that are available when we're not obsessed, addicted, in drama, struggling. So let me give you an example, a very ordinary example about how that's worked for me recently. These days, I live up in the Sierra foothills of California. And probably like you, the the place where I live, I've been living there long enough to just have a sense of what the environment is there. I'm familiar with the sounds that often happen in my home. We have different sounds that happen in our home and sounds that people who maybe live in our home with us make and the sounds we make and the sounds of the neighborhood. Just kind of getting a sense of the environment that we're in, that we inhabit, if we've been there long enough to do that. And a few months ago, a new sound inserted itself into my home environment. I didn't quite know what it was. It sort of sounded like ding, really loud. And it didn't seem to have any rhyme or reason when it was dinging, but it would ding often. I started orienting. Where's the sound? Where's it coming from? Coming from inside the house, outside the house? It took me a little while to figure out that my next-door neighbor, um, and my next-door neighbors had just had a transition. There was a, a man who had lived there for many, many years, long before I came. He was... Um, quite old, and he had moved to a more supportive living situation. The house had been up for sale, and new neighbors. And I started to orient to the outside. And finally I realized, oh, my new neighbors had put up a wind chime. And it was quite large. It it hangs 30 feet in the air. (laughs) And And it was huge, like this. And, um, and the sound is now a part of my environment. Now, we tend to have sense doors that are more sensitive than others. And in that quote from the Buddha, agreeable and disagreeable um, things will happen through the sense doors, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the mouth, the body, the mind. So I happen to have sensitive ear sense door. So it's not uncommon for uh, sense door contacts to happen and invade the mind and remain. And this wind chime surely did. Now, some of you would have listened to this wind chime and gone, oh, so beautiful. (laughs) 
My partner actually heard the wind chime and he said, oh, it reminds me of temple bells. I was like, well, yeah, it is like temple bells and it's filling the whole um, neighborhood that we live in. So I also live in a place where we get strong winds, really strong winds. They're blowing all the way across the Sacramento Valley. And so winter started to come and the winds started to pick up and the storms started to come in and oh, a thousand blessings for these rains. So grateful after this profound drought in California. So on one hand, I had tremendous gratitude for the rain. On the other hand, I started checking weather websites for when the wind was going to pick up. (laughs) Because when the wind would happen at night, it sounded just enough of a pitch like my alarm clock to literally keep me up all night. Earplugs didn't work. Nothing worked. I thought, well, I haven't even met my neighbors yet. I can't just storm over there and tell them to take down this darn wind chime. Don't they know that I'm up all night? Like, I haven't slept in a week. Like, no, that's not it. That's not it. I hadn't even met them yet. I hadn't established a base of friendliness yet. So I thought, okay, the practice is asking for me to go internal. I want to decrease reactivity, increase balance, increase spaciousness, find the root of caring, and may that lead to an appropriate response. So what did I do? First thing I did is every single time I heard the wind shine, I would take a breath and feel my feet. When the nervous system gets upset, the energy tends to move up. So I've learned, take a breath, feel my feet. Baseline mindfulness metta practice I do every day of my life. The next thing I would do when that didn't support enough decreasing of reactivity was to say to myself something to the effect of, honey, this is upsetting your system. It's okay. It'll pass. I still to this day hear Sylvia's voice in my mind, sweetheart, you're in pain. Take a breath. Take another breath. You're going to survive this. It's just a wind chime. Okay? So you get what I'm saying? It's not about the object. It's not about the object. So it's not about the sound. It's not about the wind chime. It's not about my neighbors. It's not even about me. It's a difficult sense door contact on the ear that caused reactivity. So how do we refine our equanimity? That's the practice. So then we have to acknowledge some near misses and far misses. So near miss, it's like when we think about that you know, in a visual way, it's like this, right? Almost. But it doesn't connect. It's a near miss. Close. So near misses of equanimity have some of the qualities of equanimity, but might not have a fullness. So the first one I want to acknowledge is indifference. Indifference is equanimity minus the caring. It's missing the caring. For many years, I taught meditation to teenagers. And so I always think of some of the teenagers that I worked with and how this kind of whatever mind. And even though we grow out of being teenagers, we don't always outgrow the tendency to have a whatever mind. So one of the ways that I work with that is that I've noticed that the whatever mind can sometimes be a protection, actually. 
um, and it's covering up deep caring. We care so much. The way that John described it last night when he was looking um, at the news and there was an article about the environmental devastation that's happening on some of the islands in the Pacific Ocean and his eyes slipped off the article. Right? Perhaps there was a little bit of indifference there or a little bit of protection there. But actually, as he said, he cares deeply about this and we care deeply. Sometimes we use the indifference as a little protection. Can we rest back into the underlying caring and respect the fact that we actually need protection at times? We sometimes say that we're coming to practices like this to open the heart. But the heart breathes in and out. And sometimes we need a little protection to recover our resiliency to reach out again. So it's a near miss. I asked Donald if I could share the quote that he shared the other night by Adora Welty on indifference. I couldn't even remember what the quote was, but I remembered how I felt when he shared it. And so I thought maybe some of you don't remember the actual words, but there was a feeling. I wanted to call it back in. She said, my continuing passion is to part a curtain, that invisible veil of indifference that falls between us and that blinds us to each other's presence, each other's wonder, and each other's human plight. That's the thing about our protections. Unfortunately, they protect us not just from where we're feeling maybe a little unsafe or a little overwhelmed, but they also insulate us from the wonder of life and of others. So we incline towards softening these near misses and understand and respect that they have their own process. One of my favorite equanimity metaphrases that I walk around on the planet saying, saying for decades maybe, may I trust in the unfolding. May I trust in the unfolding that this protection, this indifference, this whatever it is, is here now. And it'll keep softening, it'll transform, or it'll get more, get less. May I trust in the unfolding. John was talking about his partner when he's salsa dancing and leading from the heart. May trust from the unfolding is very much leading from the heart. So another near miss is the near miss of passivity. I want to make it really clear this is a common question with equanimity. Is it passive? Does it mean we don't do anything? Absolutely not. It's a near miss. Equanimity supports us to have all of our energy available to both see clearly what the appropriate response might be and then be able to respond. Because if our energy is caught up in reactivity, that takes a lot of energy. To struggle takes a lot of energy. Or it's caught up in you know, me and my agenda and the way I think it should be. That takes a lot of energy. When it's balanced, even, open, wise, heartful. We can see the appropriate response, we can care about it, and we can respond. 
So then there's some further away misses. If those were near misses like this, here's like a, a far miss, okay, a little bit further away. And the far miss is attachment. When we get attached, our sense of well-being gets glued to the outcome that we desire, which means that our choices have just become limited because it's me and I know what I want and it has to be that way in order for me to be okay. And then there's all these other options for okayness that aren't available. So it's a far miss. And we can be aware of it. We can incline the mind with intention, with all of our wisdom and all of our heart, and then we can let go completely. May I trust in the unfolding? One of the other equanimity phrases that I like in that spirit is, um, it's very cool as a phrase, cooling. No matter what I wish for, things are as they are. So here we are wishing safety and happiness and peace and well-being and all the rest to all these different muses. And then there's the ground that says, yes, I wish it. May it be so. On the day of Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday, and John acknowledging that this morning and saying that in the face of a time when the awareness in our country is rising of the degree and the pain of racial injustice and institutionalized oppression, may it change soon. May we awaken faster. And I could feel, maybe you could too, in the hall when he said it. Did you feel something? I mean, it was for me, I mean, I'm projecting, of course, so I have no idea what you're experiencing, but it was like I could feel hearts opening. I could feel people dropping into, like, it felt like to me, deep wishes. Now, of course, that's a projection. No, maybe it was something else for you. Maybe that was just what I felt myself. Who knows? You know, may we trust in the unfolding and understand that no matter what we wish for, things are as we are. And may we continue learning, may we continue examining our unconscious biases, may we bring the appropriate response as much as possible. All together is the equanimity. So today, we've been practicing with the familiar stranger. And I was just curious, are they more familiar now than at the beginning of the day? Just like nods, smiles, you're, you're giggling. So yeah, this is often the case for me. Sometimes people ask me, they'll practice for half a day and then I'll get a note that says, I didn't get one this retreat. And says, oh, I chose a familiar stranger, but now I love them so much, should I choose somebody else? <laughs> I say, no, 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 absolutely not. And of course that didn't happen for everybody, so don't think, oh, it should have happened. But when it does happen, that is a fruition cycle. It's manifesting, you're feeling it, savor it. Keep working with that muse, allow it to grow as big as it wants to be. One common question that I did get today in a note was something like, well, I'm actually noticing that as I include this familiar stranger as a muse, there's a lot more distraction. This is what I'm trying to respond to that. Do you have any more thoughts? And 
it's really a normal part of this process at times when we move beyond those that maybe are a little more personal to us or a little more inspiring, have some more juice. And then we move out of that circle into someone that we know less well, right? A familiar stranger. The distraction can come. And so it's completely fine. We're not letting go of the other muses and leaving them behind. Maybe you take more time with yourself or benefactor, good friend. A little less time with the familiar stranger. Fill the reservoir first and then let's spill over to include this next one. I think metta for the familiar stranger is a great time to notice equanimity in some of the near misses because we don't know their story. We're not personally connected. And so we can work with evenness. And for me, sometimes that evenness has such a distinct lack of drama that I can even start to get bored, you know, addicted to the story and the charge and the drama. And what is boredom? Boredom's a slight disconnect from experience. That's all it is. We don't have to make a big story about, oh, I, I put so much effort into coming here, now I'm bored. What is this about? No, no, no. Slight disconnect from experience. How can I reconnect? Maybe refresh the image or feel the phrases somatically or use some of the supports. There's one story I heard this fall that cracked me up. It's a near miss of equanimity with the familiar stranger. And it's, I, it wasn't a story that somebody told me personally. It was a story I heard about somebody, somebody new. So it's about a man who lives in New York City. And he was doing metta practice and got to, in his daily life, the way that some of us love to do. And he got to the familiar stranger The story actually took place, you can tell, a while ago because the person that he chose as his familiar stranger was one of the clerks in his local video store around the corner. And so he started wishing metta for this familiar stranger. You know, just didn't know them beyond their first name and kind of um, some hellos when he would come by. And as he practiced... He actually, the way that it was told to me, he fell in love with this person that he knew nothing about. And it got so extreme that one day he walked into the video store and he saw this person and he was so filled with loving kindness that he burst into tears and he had to run out the door. (laughs) Okay? So the metta wasn't balanced with equanimity there. He said that it got so bad that he had to go to a different video store for a month until he could recover his equanimity enough to return to his regular video store. So sometimes we see that. Sometimes we get bored with one that's not immediately dear to us, and sometimes we get a little bit overly involved. Then we find our balance. Tomorrow, those of you that have done this retreat know that we will be doing our theme day, quote-unquote, on the difficult person muse. So, to go back to the wind chime story. Okay? My neighbors, there are three of them that live in their house, they did not pop out of the womb with a sign on their forehead that said, I am a difficult person. 
They became my difficult person because I had difficulty with something that they did. You see the difference? Okay. So what we're doing in a way when we're working with a muse of a difficult person is we're uncoupling that piece that says they are difficult, like they're fundamentally difficult, so we can hold them in their wholeness. And holding them in their wholeness is an expression of equanimity. More recently, we had to do some work on our road, and the neighbors needed to pull together to pay for that work. And um, even though my new neighbors had, had to just dig a new well, you know, in this drought, our wells have been going dry where I live. And it's quite expensive. They were still generous in supporting this work so that we could get in and out of our private um, country road during El Nino. They're more than the people who didn't think about the impact on the neighbors of hanging the wind chime. And so can we hold people in their wholeness, we each manifest difficult behavior. All of us are the difficult person for somebody else. All of us are the difficult person for ourselves. So tomorrow we'll offer some suggestions, some instructions for this difficult person muse. Um, So just kind of an introduction The first thing I want to say is if you've been waiting the whole retreat to work with what I call your nemesis, the most difficult person in your life, I'm really sorry to tell you we're not going to encourage that. Because we're building the metta muscle. We start where it's workable with the understanding that we're then going to expand to the most difficult individuals, groups, societal conditions that there are. But if we start with the most difficult, we're very, very likely to flood, to disconnect, to get overwhelmed, to protect, understandably. So we titrate it. This whole practice is a practice of titration, basically, or bite-sizing it. Yeah. So I'll give some more suggestions about that tomorrow morning. But just want to offer a couple of possibilities of cultivating resilience deep in the nervous system to support the practice and the work. Because when we're working with a difficult person muse, we're acknowledging that we're working with challenge. It's not as if we're just starting the challenge tomorrow. Anybody not had a single moment of challenge the whole retreat? Okay, there are no hands up. So we need these kind of supports so that equanimity isn't just a heart practice, isn't just a mind practice, but it's a fully embodied practice. So I already offered that one possibility of the way I was working with the wind chime. For me, when I notice reactivity arising, and it starts with the noticing, without the recognition, there's no choice to be able to pull out a tool to be able to respond. So recognition is important. I start to notice a little upset, a strong emotion, reactivity. And all of those energies have a tendency to move up energetically. I'm generalizing, so it's, it's not across the board, but they do have a tendency to move up. And so if we can start to develop very simple practices to support the quality of equanimity of non-reactivity, then 
we're already more settled for when we get the startle. And we also know how to respond, a first response, a first possible response. So when you notice something difficult starting to rise, consider just taking a breath, you know, a deeper breath, and then immediately dropping your attention down to feel your feet. Keep your exact same posture, but try it just now. Just take a deeper breath, and then feel your feet and see what they feel like. If your feet hurt, do the same thing with your hands, you know, because it works both ways. We're bringing the mindfulness down. It reminds the energetic body that it doesn't just have to be like whoosh, overwhelm. We can ground. We can settle. During the compassion practice yesterday, I mentioned that when it starts to get intense, we can just open our eyes, look around a little bit, orient ourselves to here so that we don't start spinning and drowning in the intensity, whatever it is. And we can take a deeper breath and notice, ah, there's enough air in this hole to breathe. I know you know that. The nervous system's super ancient. It's simple. It's so different to say, I know there's enough air to breathe. That's very cognitive, very helpful. And then there's deeper layers. So we actually show it there's enough air. You work with your difficult person, it starts, you think it's like a, a number three on a scale of one to 10 of difficulty, and then it spikes to a seven. You take a deeper breath. Go, there's enough air to breathe with this. And then maybe you offer the metta to yourself for a moment and then pendulate back. Because it's spiked. You thought it was a three and now it's a seven. A few helpful tools. So what about when the difficult person is you? Some of us will be choosing ourselves tomorrow. It's fine. It's also fine not to choose yourself because you might actually at times be higher level of difficulty than is wise to take on. Okay? So I've been looking forward to sharing this with you. It's a little bit long, but it just, it really says it all to me. So it's by uh, the writer Valerie Cox. And it takes place at an airport. (laughs) A woman was waiting at an airport one night with several long hours before her flight. She hunted for a book in the airport shop, bought a bag of cookies, and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book but happened to see that the man beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. She munched cookies and watched the clock as this gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. (laughs) She was getting more irritated and the minutes ticked by, thinking, if I wasn't nice, I'd blacken his eye. (laughs) With each cookie she took, he took one too. And when there was only one left, she wondered what he would do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, 
He took the last cookie and broke it in half. <laughs> he offered her half as he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, oh, brother, this guy has some nerve and he's also rude. Why didn't he even show any gratitude? She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed for the gate, refusing to look back at the thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank into her seat and then sought her book, which was almost complete. As she reached into her baggage, she gasped with surprise. There was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. <laughs> if mine are here, she moaned with despair, then the others were his and he tried to share. <laughs> oh, too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. Okay. Maybe you haven't had a moment that dramatic, but we've all had our moments when we just realize the jerk is me. And how do we bring a full, welcoming friendliness of our own humanness and our own imperfection and our own brokenness and our own missteps? And really, really allow it so that we can allow for others' missteps and brokenness. We can allow for the missteps and brokenness in our organizations and our politics and not get so reactive so that we have all our energy to bear to realize this is the action I can take to support less brokenness and less missteps. This is equanimity. We start to understand that actually we're all in this together. We're one of many. One of many is so different than the self-obsession with me, 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 me. I mean, I know I'm the most important person in this room, and I know you're the most important person in this room too, but do we always have to orient from that vantage point? Can we start to relax and open to possibilities that we're all in this together? In the 12-step tradition, there's a way of talking about this. And the way of talking about it is that um, the practice of the spiritual path is to become comfortable being one of many. Not special like the best in the room and not special like the most screwed up in the room, but just one of many. That's an expression of equanimity. We start to connect with the direct experience that everything is connected with everything else that everything leads to everything else. Think about some of your most difficult habit patterns and how they're completely conditioned by where you were born, where you grew up, who raised you, who influenced you, the culture you grew up in. It's not like you came out of the womb and said, I think I'll have these difficult habit patterns and they'll become so entrenched that they'll be frequent visitors the rest of my life. We didn't come out of the womb saying that. One thing leads to another, leads to another. So the good news is, is that also the wholesome qualities that we develop. One thing leads to another, leads to another. 
So one of the things I do when I get caught up in difficulty and I just need a little headline refresher of reality, I just, I just kind of feel myself, I smile, I say to myself, causes and conditions, causes and conditions. I'm just remembering, oh yeah, everything led to this moment that's a little bit wonky. And then when through the recognition, it starts to clear up. Then energy is available for an appropriate response. This is from Rilke by um, Sonnet 5, Part 1. You who let yourselves feel, enter the breathing that is more than your own. Let it brush your cheeks as it divides and rejoins behind you. Blessed ones, whole ones, you where the heart begins, You are the bow that shoots the arrows, and you are the target. Fear not the pain. Let its weight fall back into the earth. For heavy are the mountains, heavy the seas. The trees you planted in childhood have grown too heavy. You cannot bring them along. Give yourselves to the air, to what you cannot hold. One of the many favorite retreats that I teach at Spirit Rock here every year is at the winter solstice. I teach it with Donald and John Travis, who is uh, my teaching partner up in Mountain Stream Meditation, where I live in the foothills. And so we taught it again, I think it's almost our 10th year now, teaching this retreat together. Great retreat, loved it. And then I got in my car and drove home. I was unpacking Settling in, oh, so nice to sleep in my own bed again. Uh, I'm on the road a lot, so I'm always not missing the gratitude of, of being able to sleep in a familiar bed. I'm getting ready for dinner, you know, oh, making my own food at dinner in the evening. Suddenly, at some point in the evening, I had the thought there's something missing. There's something missing. What is it? And then I realized. I haven't heard that wind chime (laughs) since I got back. And there's winds. Huh. And then I thought, I'm so grateful that there's no wind chime tonight. You know, yes, I'd worked with the reactivity. I'd calmed the nervous system. I'd brought forward metta. I'd realized that they're not inherently difficult on the planet. I'd held them in their wholeness. You know? And then it just wasn't there. And I thought, well... Maybe I'll come back tomorrow, but I'm grateful in this moment that it's not the accompanying music to my life. And then all night, no wind chime. The next day, no wind chime. The next day, no sound. I haven't heard it since. You know, so I don't know what happened while I was teaching the solstice retreat. I don't know whether there's a huge windstorm while I was teaching the solstice retreat. Maybe um, it got knocked down. You know, I hope it's okay if it did. <laughs> I have to admit, at the peak of my reactivity, I was having visions of it being knocked down. Um, You know, maybe another neighbor complained. 
maybe they actually had a moment of illumination, like there's a lot of winds here, this is rather loud, maybe we should take it down. I don't know what happened. But I'm so grateful that I did the inner work so that in developing my relationship with them as new neighbors, I can extend full friendliness and hold them in their wholeness. And that's what I wish for, for them to extend to me. Friendliness and holding me in my wholeness. Now this story isn't about just about our immediate neighbors. It's about our planet. Can we do the inner work so that we can have the outer relationships in a skillful way, an appropriate way? When I thought about sharing this story, I don't think they're meditators or anything, but they are new neighbors, and we do have a, a we have our own meditation center, community center, in the town that I live in, this Insight Center. And I had the thought, hmm, I wonder, what if they came to the center? And what if they started meditating? And what if they went on Dharma Seed and heard the story? <laughs> So to my neighbors, if you ever go on Dharma Seed and hear this story, please understand that I thank you for being my teacher, you know, and that I wish you well. Oh, it's so human, this practice. Uh, another quote by Jnana uh, about the quality of equanimity, along with the rest of these heart practices, so they, the heart practices, are considered to be the ideal societal attitudes, the springs underlying the ideal modes of conduct towards living beings. The great healers of social tension and conflict, the builders of harmony and cooperation, they serve as potent antidotes to the poisons of hatred, cruelty, envy, impartiality, so widespread in modern life. So we are living in a world of difficulty. We're living in a world where there is violence, where there is discrimination, where there is injustice. And while we seem to be generally in some kind of cycle where the awareness in this country and globally is in a slightly more heightened state about these issues, they are not new. They've been going on and on and on. And of course, they're not the whole of our world either. Our world is also filled with acts of kindness, acts of courage, tremendous compassion, and unspeakable beauty. It's all here. And equanimity is really the ground of the heart and mind that can hold it all, that can be with it all intimately, wisely, in a balanced, spacious way. So there was a question this morning about sometimes the headlines are even more dramatic and upsetting than they need to be because it sells. How do we have equanimity with the pains of the world? And it's a big question. And the truth of the matter is, is that the journey we're on is going to provide our unique expression of the answer to those questions that are huge. 
but for me, when I see the headline and my eyes start to trail off the headline because it's too much, it's just too much, there's a few things. One of the things I do is acknowledge that that's happening the same way John was acknowledging. And I take that deeper breath and I feel my feet to settle things, to provide more resiliency in the system. I rest back in the underlying intention and refuge and caring that I have about the issues on this planet. And for me, it's a practice of taking in the news of the world and the way that it impacts me personally, archetypally, body, mind, um, with Dharma eyes. I call it Dharma eyes. I go, okay, here's a little bit more drama to sell the article. Here's some information and here's my response. Now I have a hand on the heart. And here's an underlying theme of violence. And there's that little part that it says about resiliency that'd be so easy to miss because it's not as dramatic. And I'm looking for underlying themes more than the particulars so that I can actually take in more and not get lost in the particulars, which is another reason it's so important to just relax the awareness with the object. So we can start to see through Dharma eyes. This one is about oppression. This one is about an appropriate response. This one is about this. That's helped me. We will each find our own way. And thank you for doing that practice because it's a model and an inspiration for others who need to find their own way. So I want to close with a wisdom story that comes out of the Cherokee people who have been passed down. And it's another possibility to answer this question, how do we cultivate the seeds of a wise heart that the world needs? How do we cultivate it now? How do we cultivate it forever? It's called Two Wolves. Cherokee elder is telling his grandson about a fight that is going on inside himself. He said to his grandson, Grandson, it's between two wolves. He said one wolf is the difficulty. Anger, envy, sorrow, regret, fearful thinking, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, The other wolf is the positive, joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, compassion. And the grandson took a moment and thought about what his grandfather had said. And he asked his grandfather a question. He said, Grandfather, which wolf wins? And the grandfather responded, the one I feed. That's really 
an important piece of what we're doing here. We're feeding that which we want to manifest and infuse the world with in our simple, invaluable expression that's uniquely our own. Thank you for feeding that second wolf. May it benefit us all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.